If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, nobody forced me to become a writer. I'm, I'm tired of people saying, oh, God, it's difficult. I'm, you know, writer's block, it's so hard. As if somebody put a gun to their head and say, you will no longer be a bank clerk, you will no longer be a chartered accountant, you're going to be a writer. Oh, no, please, no, anything. It's a huge privilege. I spend my days telling stories. That was Bernard Cornwell on his passion for historical fiction. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Bernard Cornwell, one of the world's best-known historical novelists, whose works include the Sharp and Last Kingdom series both of which have of course been televised. And in fact, the next series of The Last Kingdom is due to be released on Netflix on the 19th of November. Bernard spoke at our recent History Weekend event in Winchester. And before his talk, he caught up with our digital editorial assistant, Rachel Dinning. I'm here at our Winchester History Weekend with Bernard Cornwell, one of the best-selling historical authors of all time. Bernard has written more than 50 novels and sold over 20 million books around the world. And he's the author of The Last Kingdom and Sharp series. So welcome, Bernard. Thank you, Rachel. It's 
great to have you on the podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Um, so I wanted to start by looking at your career over the years. So you had an interesting job history. You started off <laughs> as a teacher, um, then joined the BBC and ended up head of current affairs in Northern Ireland. Uh, what, when did you suddenly decide to take the leap into historical fiction then? Well, I, I never really did decide to take the leap. Um, it was thrust upon me. Um, by that time, I was editor of Thames Television News in London, and, and I was frightfully important. I had 186 people working for me. And, but just before that happened, I was in Edinburgh, and lift doors opened, and a blonde walked out. And, and I said to my reporter, I was with me, I said, I'm going to marry that one. And she was frightfully inconvenient because she was an American and she was already married. But, you know, the course of true love and all that stuff. And she couldn't come and live in Britain. And I said, well, don't worry, darling, I'll, I'll come to America, which, I, you know, I never wanted to do. I mean, who, who wants to? But I did. And the Americans, in their wisdom, said you could, I, they wouldn't give me a green card, a work permit. So I said, don't worry, darling, I'll write a book. Forty years later, we're still married, and I'm st not the same book, but I'm still <laughs> writing. So, I mean, it was, it was literally, it was love. You started your career as a writer out of love. Yeah, That's I did. That's a great absolutely. place to start. And, and she absolutely detests the books. I mean, you know, no, she's a, she's a vegetarian, pacifist yoga teacher. Not a fan of the battle scenes. You got it. I, I was once sitting in my, my living room and, and she was with a friend in the kitchen and I heard the friend say, do you read Bernard's books? And she said, I skip the battles. <laughs> Is that not quite a lot of the books? <laughs> but it's a love affair that's lasted 40 years and, and you know, if, if people like my books, they have Judy to thank for it. What do you think you'd be doing if your career as an author hadn't taken off? Do, would you still be in news? I've often thought about that. And, and I thought, well, I'd probably end up as director of programmes at a, a regional television company. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd be retired by now because I'm ancient. Uh, and I'd have put on even more weight because I'd have so many hospitality lunches. And it wouldn't have been that successful, but it wouldn't have been that unsuccessful. You know, it would have been... An, Average, I, I guess. I'm actually, I'm very glad I got out of television when I did because suddenly it all went to uh, freelance work. And, and I'll be, the, the truth is I'd always wanted to write. Um, I had this idea it was, it was a better life than working. And so in, in many ways, meeting Judy was a spur to doing what I'd always wanted to do. So I'm hugely grateful. Changed your life in every And anybody way. who wants to be a writer, I would suggest to hang around lifts in Edinburgh. <laughs> and see who comes out. Exactly. So you worked in Northern Ireland reporting on, well, you were head of current affairs. I was very grand. I had a, a young man, he was 21, who worked for me uh, called Jeremy Paxman. And I, I gather he's done quite well. Yeah, just a bit. A bit, <laughs> What was it like over there? I mean, what was it like, you being an English person over there? Oh, it was whilst... wonderful. Yeah? I, I absolutely, I loved Belfast. I still do to this day. I mean, the, the thing you have to understand about Northern Ireland is everybody hates them. 
And I mean everybody. The British don't want to be there. Uh, the Southern Irish do not want Northern Ireland. I mean, it's just a horrible embarrassment to them. And yet they're wonderful. They're, 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 they're very funny. And I originally went there on a three-month attachment. And I, I had nailed down my job in London. And, and I had these absolutely cast-iron promises written in blood that I would get my job back after three months. And I, I remember flying back to London to see my ostensible boss who had these, this job for me. And he said, yeah, you know, you can come back two weeks from now and you'll go straight on to the Tonight program. And as I flew back into Belfast and the plane was circling and I was looking down on these little postage stamp sized fields and I thought, I don't want to leave. I love this place too much. And, and so I stayed and I still to this day have an, an enormous and sentimental love of Ireland. I call it the English disease, falling in love with Ireland. And, and part of that is that in all my books, um, there's only been one Irish villain, because I do love the Irish, and so the Irish always come out well. But for peculiar reasons, I needed an Irish villain. So I thought, how do I make him into someone even the Irish will hate? And I thought, ah, oh, I got it. He loves the English. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I love Ireland. Ireland is it's a, it's a glorious, wonderful country. I am partial to Northern Ireland as my partner is Northern Irish. So You're he'll a good be happy woman, to, Rachel. You're a very good woman. Happy to hear this. But. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, everyone born in, in Belfast has a, you know, already has a membership card for the sort of union of, of comedians. The jokes are wonderful. It's, it, it, I mean, I had horrible times there. I mean, some awful things happened when I was there. It was the second worst year of the Troubles. I hope it stays that way. And I was there for four years. But, but I, what I most remember about Belfast is laughter. Yeah, there's a special humour. Like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So on to, on to your writing career. Over the years, you've written about such a wide variety of time periods. So we've got the Napoleonic Wars, we've got the American Civil War, we've got the Hundred Years' War, King Arthur, the Saxons, the Danes. <laughs> Why, when you decided to start writing books, did you decide, I'm going to write books that have got a historical background? Why not just fantasy? Well, uh, oh, good Lord. <laughs> I, th I think you write what you want to read. And... From way, way back, I loved historical novels. Absolutely loved historical novels. So I wanted to write what I wanted to read. And when I first moved to America and, and suddenly found myself without a job and needing to make some money, it had long actually occurred to me, I mean, for some years, I guess this ambition had been in me, which I, I mean, there was Hornblow, who I loved when I read him. And then there was Belitho, and then there was Ramage. And all these guys were, were actually making a living out of the Royal Navy against Napoleon. And I thought, well, this is weird. Why aren't, isn't anybody writing about the army? Um, so that seemed to me to be a gap on the shelf. So that's how I started. But, I mean, you do, you write what you want to, I hope you write what you want to read. I mean, I know that, you know, if, you know, a book comes out which is an, a huge, tremendous success, Fifty Shades of Grey, and then every publisher is sort of dreading the moment when they're going to get a book which is called Fifty One Shades of Taupe or whatever, you know, because people say, well, that's the way to, to but no, that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to write what you want to read. And initially you write for yourself, you write the book you want to read. And you hope that a publisher, an agent, somebody will like it enough. And then you hope that 
a wider audience will love it. That's interesting because I've um, heard interviews with you before where you've described your writing process and you say that you're not a planner in the same way that other people are. I you wish. just sort of write. No, I wish. <laughs> I absolutely wish. I can't do it. I, thank God I've never had to, to submit a synopsis to a publisher <laughs> because the only way I can write a synopsis is to write the whole novel. I mean, I'm writing another Uhtred now, which would be the 12th, I think. I think, yes. And... I've got him to chapter three, and I realize that he's dead. There's no way he can get out of the place I've put him. And so I'm going to have to go back and, and not start again, but go back to chapter two and change it so that he has a slight chance of survival. I think it was E.L. Doctorow who said, and I love this, he said, um, writing a novel is rather like driving down... Uh, a country lane at night, which you've never driven down before. And it's a winding road. And you can only see as far ahead as your rather dim headlights show you. And that's the only way I can write. Um, I think the great joy of reading a novel is to find out what happens. And for me, the great joy of writing a novel is to find out what happens. And okay, I've just found out that Uhtred is dead and the series is over and my fans are going to be horribly disappointed, but I have the power to go back a chapter and a half and say, oh, oops, here we go again. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting because you said that you, you're writing the books that you want to read and your whole writing process is as if you're, you're reading the book yourself yeah. you're discovering what's happening. I don't know what's going to... I really don't know what's going to happen next. I have this, I have this vague idea that Uhtred is going to have to get to London... Um, and, and I've got a sort of image in my head of something he may do there, but it may not happen. Mm -hmm. And I've actually got to almost the end of a book and not quite sure how he's going to end it. Um, but I think that's actually... And, and I know that, I mean, it was Somerset Maugham who said there are three rules for writing a novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. And I, I actually have a great envy for those writers who can plot it all. I, you know, I mean, Joanne Rowling, I mean... It's brilliant, but she can plot it out, I'm told. Yeah, she before. knew the end. Before, yeah, and that's great. That's terrific. And no one can argue with that, but, but I can't do it that way. I can only do it by writing it and then saying, hey, that's not working, let's go back and find another route which will work better. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds like the exciting way to do it. You also, you often say in interviews that with historical fiction, you have a large story and a small story. So, and the example... i said it too often, haven't I? <laughs> well, it's true. There, there's, there's a big story and a little story. Now, the, you know, I mean, the examples I always use is, is, you know, the big story of Gone with the Wind is the Civil War. The little story is Can Scarlet Save Tara? But what you do is you flip them. You put the little story in the foreground. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, the big story is the creation of England in, in the Uhtred books. Because it actually is... I mean, I grew up in England. I was educated rather well in England. But nobody ever taught me how England was created. I mean, I, not once did they... You know, it was just assumed that England was always there. And, you know, we learned about King Alfred being a very bad baker. But nobody said it wasn't in England. It was only in Wessex. Yeah. Um, so I think this is a story worth telling, that, that how England is created. But that's the big story, and that goes into the background. And in the foreground, you put all this fictional stuff. Mm -hmm. As you say, you've got a blend of real and fiction. And I think they often say that historical fiction is a bit of a gateway into 
researching history. Do you prefer writing events that have already happened or do you prefer writing events and, and battles, for example, that are completely made up from your own head? Well, it really depends on the story. I mean, in the new book, War of the Wolf, there, there is a battle at the end of the book, which I actually think is one of the best I've ever written. It's totally fictional. It's complete. But on the other hand, these are the dark ages. Who knows what was going on? Um, I think what you have to do is that the background, the big story, has to be authentic. The circumstances of the book have to be authentic. The real historical background about Alfred, his children, his grandchildren, that has to be authentic. But on top of that, you can, obviously, you've got to put fiction. You know, there was no Tara, there was no Scarlett O'Hara. And the world would be a worse place if, if they didn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's very nice when you can write a book like I wrote a book called Agincourt, where, you know, okay, we, we got this stuff and we're not going to muck about too much with the real history. But at other times, my job is not to, I'm not an historian. My job is not to educate you. I assume you're educated, Rachel. Uh, my job is to entertain you. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Uhtred the protagonist of your Saxon series or the Last Kingdom series. He's a figment of your imagination, but he's also based on a real person. Well, let's put it like this. There was someone called Uhtred. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's my ancestor. Can you, yeah, I was going to ask you, can you tell me about your, how you found this link? To this well, yeah, you see, okay, well, let's go back to big story, little story. Okay. 
I'd always wanted to write about the Saxons, about the creation of England. It seemed to me a story worth telling. But, I mean, that's like Margaret Mitchell saying, I want to write about the Civil War. She needs the little story. She needs that vehicle to tell the greater story. And, and I really didn't have that little story. And then when I was 58, I met my real father for the very first time. It was extremely careless of me, but I'd lost him. And he was living in Canada, and his surname is Outred, which is quite close. And it turned out that, that they had this family tree that goes all the way back to Ida the Flamebearer in the seventh century. Wow. And Ida the Flamebearer uh, claims to be descended from Odin, the god, so be careful. And I thought, this is fascinating, because the, his Outred, who was in this genealogy, was the Lord of Bebenburg, Bamborough Castle. And I thought, how the hell did a Saxon, in this case an Angle, hang on to his fortress and his land in a country, Northumbria, that was totally dominated and ruled by Danes? And I thought, that's my story. And is that the, the moment that sparked you? Absolutely. I mean, it was the next year I began, I wrote The Last Kingdom, because mm -hmm. I suddenly thought, OK, my story is about this guy from Northumbria uh, who, by chance, happens to be my ancestor. It's quite interesting that um, some of the big choices you've made, say, for example, meeting your wife prompted you to write books and then meeting your father prompted you to ultimately go on to write The Last Kingdom. It's, that's quite an interesting... You're suggesting I should find lots and lots of lost relatives. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, why not? Yes, why not? Um, so season three of The Last Kingdom yeah. is going to debut on Netflix um, sometime in the near future. I don't think there's a date yet. I think it's, I, as far as I know, it's mid-November, but mm -hmm. if they haven't told you, they haven't told me either. I have not been told. <laughs> so I hear that you'll be making a cameo appearance. This is true. What can you tell me about... What, well, what, firstly, tell me briefly about your acting career. Well, about... about uh, I live in, in the summer, we live in Cape Cod in Massachusetts, which, which is a wonderful place to live. And we have this terrific theatre in town called the Monomoy Theatre. And it, I think it's a unique theatre because what they do is they bring in drama students from all across North America and sometimes from Britain too, uh, to put on a season of eight plays in 10 weeks. It's a boot camp for actors. And the grown-up parts, by which I mean, you know, King Lear and so on, are played by equity actors from New York and all the directors are sort of professionals. And somehow I got involved. And, and so I've spent the last 12 years, I think, making a fool of myself on stage. Um, and yes, then, then, then the, the wonderful people who make The Last Kingdom said, would you like to do a cameo appearance? And like an idiot, I said, yes. And what did that involve? What well, it involved an hour and a half in makeup and I ended up having hair extensions down to here. And did they suit you? Which, I mean, when I was 18 or 19, <laughs> I had That would have been the... Here, yeah. But, yeah but... Are you going to continue to wear hair extensions? I'm tempted. It took me a week to wash the glue out of my hair. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and, and in it, I am a, a rogue called Birnhat. Oh, you have a name. I, I do. Amazing. It, I even had a caravan with my name on it. It was frightfully nice. And um, basically, I get murdered by Uhtred. So you meet your hero. I guess he's not your hero. Is your, he's not your character's hero, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, no, it was, it was fun. I mean, I'm going to be honest. 
I, I shall, you know, if you blink, you'll miss me. 15 mm -hmm. seconds, I would imagine, between the Just moments. out of curiosity, because I don't know much about, um, well, TV production or film production. How long does it take to film? How long did it take to film this scene? There's 15 seconds? Yeah. I would think it took 25 minutes. Oh, okay. I was expecting, I was expecting it to be longer than that. But Maybe longer, but... I suppose you've got all the hair and makeup. No, I mean, you know, I had five words to say. It was take one. <laughs> very, very good. So we asked our readers on Twitter and Facebook to see what they wanted to ask you. And I'd also like to give a shout out to the Bernard Cornwell fan club on Facebook because they got in touch with some terrific questions. And some of them just wanted to say hello to you. So. Oh, hello. <laughs> Shout out to them. I believe some of them are actually in the audience tonight. And I also know that some of them have got a gift to give to you later, but I won't spoil what it is. So look out for that. Um, so yeah, so I've got some questions. Well, that's very nice of them. From your fans. Okay. So Chris Harding wants to know, well, he says, I'm so impressed with how the TV series of The Last Kingdom follows the plot of the books. Is that because of you or is it just a happy coincidence? Oh, it's, it's up to them entirely. I mean, I, I'm glad it does. Um, I, I, I actually try and stay away from it. Uh, I mean, I was 11 years in television, and the one thing I learned in television is I know nothing about producing television drama. So they did very kindly say to me, did I want to be an advisor? And I thought, no, I don't. And um, what I love about the series is that you get this added value which is all these incredibly creative people, makeup people, costume people, the actors, the scriptwriter, the producers, the director. And they add stuff to the books. And they have constraints I don't have. I mean, if, you know, if I get to chapter five in the book I'm writing now, and, and the, the plot is really flagging, you know, I can bring on 30,000 Danes screaming murder, but they can't do that because 30,000 Danes cost a lot of money in television terms. And I think they do an amazing and marvelous job and I, I don't want to interfere. And when people, I mean, I used to get really irritated by people who complained about Sean Bean because he didn't have black hair. And I thought, oh, come on, Sean Bean is sharp. Yeah. You know, I mean, I got it wrong when I said he had black hair because Sean Bean doesn't have black hair. And, and I love the fact that they add this value and that they, they give you something which is more than the book and sometimes better than the book. I mean, I always thought that um, the guy who played Obadiah Hakeswill was far better than my Obadiah Hakeswill. So that's great because then, you know, the, and in, in The Last Kingdom, there's that wonderful character with the sharpened teeth, which are all, oh my God. God, I wish I'd invented him, but they invented it. So, you know, we should just be really grateful for the, for the contribution they bring. So Martin Jones wants to ask, would you ever consider writing about the Spanish Armada? Because he says it combines two of your great loves, the Tudor period and sailing. <laughs> I've thought about it. I really have thought about it. Um, I, I, Martin, I'm sorry, but maybe one day it'll happen. I, mm. Never say never. Never say never. It, 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 it's it's a, a genuine maybe possibility one day, perhaps, if I live long enough. Jackie Brunsden wants to know, how do you choose which historical events to feature in the Last Kingdom series? Well, 
We don't know that much. I mean, we, we know a lot about, about Alfred's reign because Alfred liked to write it all down and he began the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. And when he dies in 899, it's rather as though the lights go out. And, and um, So I try and put in the sort of major events that the Chronicle mentions. Um, but, but there's not enough there to make up a short story. You know, you've actually got to invent more. Obviously, the series, if I say obviously, is going to end with the Battle of Brunenburg in 937, because before the Battle of Brunenburg, there wasn't an England, and that night there was. I mean, it was that sudden and that quick. And it, it all didn't happen in one day, obviously, because it had been happening for 30, 40 years beforehand. But the Battle of Brunenburg, which is a desperate, desperate day, horrible day, um, made it happen. So obviously that has to be there. And then in, in the book that's just come out, War of the Wolf, I have Athelstan, who in, I admire, um, who becomes the king of Wessex and who wins the Battle of Brunenburg, giving an oath to Uhtred that he will never invade Northumbria. Well, in fact, he does. He's going to break that oath. So that has to be in there. So you, you pick, as it were, salient points out of the chronicle, out of the histories, and say, OK, that, that will make a book. But sometimes, I mean, in many ways, War of the Wolf doesn't have any of those in it. But it does reflect a reality, which is that Northumbria, which is now the last of the old kingdoms, is under siege from the Norsemen. So that's what that book is about. But there's no great event in the Chronicles that, that illustrates that. Mm -hmm. Kim Davis Daniel wants to know, well, she says, all of your books are very well researched. Isn't she nice? I like her already. <laughs> How much time do you spend researching? Actually, research is a lifetime occupation. I mean, it genuinely is. I mean, I've been reading this stuff since I was 18, or, you know, 18, and the Napoleonic stuff since I was 14. Um, and I, I mean, I hate to sort of let her down, but I, I actually hate researching. <laughs> I love reading. I'll read history. I mean, that's what I read for, for, for pleasure. Um, and I do do, obviously, I do research. But I remember when I wrote that, I wrote three books on, on King Arthur, right? If you were, I don't believe he ever was a king, but never mind, you know, I mean, it's Arthur. And I really was, I wanted these books to be so wonderful, and I was researching like crazy. And after three months of really very hard work, um, I just got bored. I just thought, I can't read another goddamn book about, right? And I thought, okay, I don't know whether to write this book in the first person or the third person. And I'd, every book I'd written up until then had been in the third person. So I thought, I, I, I feel this book ought to be in the first person. So one day I thought, okay, I'm going to take a break from research. I'm just going to write a chapter in the first person to see how it goes. Now, I remember it was in September. Had you met um, a missing relative at this time? No missing relative, <laughs> sorry. Um, and... That was September, and I never looked up. December, that first book was basically finished. It took another three or four months to polish it up, but it just, whew, it just came. And it was just such a relief not to be researching. Um, which doesn't mean to say that when you're writing, you don't do research. I mean, uh, of course you do. I mean, you get to a point in a book and you think, you know, um, did they actually have Bren guns? in the ninth century so you know you google it and find out they didn't um but the joy is actually writing the story and i've never forgotten that amazing rush of september october november december of 
a book just coming, just just coming. When it all comes together. Yeah, and and it was just that day of thinking, I'm just tired of research. Let's just let's just tell a story. I'm actually really curious. Um, how what what does your a day look like for you of write, like writing a book? <laughs> I well, you sit down and you work. I tend to get up early, and I like to be working early. Um, I mean, I'm usually in what I laughably call my office at sort of half five or six in the morning. And I begin by looking at the newspaper. That's, you know, getting a coffee down you. And you can usually get 30, 40 minutes of work before the dog needs to go for a walk. Um, and then you've got the morning, and then, you know, the dog wants more time, and it's lunch. And I had this incredibly irritating dog that demands to have a tennis ball thrown for him every afternoon. How unreasonable. And, uh, and you do... You do Look, nobody forced me to become a writer. I'm, I'm tired of people saying, oh, God, it's difficult. I'm, you know, I've got writer's block. It's so hard. As if somebody put a gun to their head and say, you will no longer be a bank clerk. You will no longer be a chartered accountant. You're going to be a writer. Oh, no, please, no, anything. It's a huge privilege. I spend my days telling stories. I make up people. I invent their lives. I in dictate their fates, I give them love affairs. It's wonderful, it's, it's, it's amazing. You hear their conversations in your head when you go to bed at night, you can hear them talking to each other. Do you dream about your stories? I might do, I never remember my dreams, but I do. I mean, I'm walking the dog and, and I hear the characters talking to each other. And it's not about anything in the book, it's about something else. Oh, but it tells me about them. What sort of conversations are they having? I couldn't possibly repeat them. <laughs> PG. Um, <laughs> so Peter J. Lacey wants to know, how do you think England might have evolved and developed as a nation? This is quite a heavy question. If the, if the Norman invasion had failed and we'd continued from Harold Godwinson onwards. That's actually a very interesting question. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I'm going to weasel my way out of it by saying, you know, what if questions are impossible? Um... Oddly enough, I don't think it would have been that much different because what you have with the Norman invasion, you, you've obviously got a new ruling class coming in that speaks a different language and is going to go on speaking that language for 400 years. But there comes a moment in the 14th and 15th centuries where, where that ruling class begins to understand that if they're going to stay on top, they need these people underneath, which is the Hundred Years' War, the Longbow. And, I mean, in 1415, the year of Agincourt, I, I might be wrong about this, uh, it was the first year when English was used in the law courts. Uh, and, and suddenly, if you like, it's taken them a long time, but the Anglo-Normans have become gone native. It might have been a nicer country, I mean, in, in the sense that I think that the, 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 the Saxons had a greater sense of social justice, but in the end that came back. I mean, in the end, the Saxons won. We won. Um, you know, we assimilated the Normans and we civilised them. So I think in the end it probably wouldn't have made a huge amount of difference. I think as we're nearing the end of the podcast, could we perhaps just finish off with what, what can your fans expect from the latest in the Last of the Kingdom series. The War of War the Wolf, the new book. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's got a terrific battle at the end. 
So keep reading to that. <laughs> the best you've ever written. I uh, Yeah, I actually said to my wife, because she always gets the first read of it, I say, you're going to hate the ending, it's so good. <laughs> um, I've already moved on from that because I'm writing the one after it. What's coming next then? Well, well, Are you allowed to tell me? Well, in many ways, the, the, the end of War of the Wolf tells you what's coming next, um, because we really are now looking at the creation of England. And a sort of subtext in the last two or three books has been the rivalry between Athelstan, who many people claimed was illegitimate and almost certainly wasn't, and his half-brother, Alfred. Um, and there comes this wonderful moment when King Edward, Edward the Elder, dies. He rather foolishly, a bit like King Lear, splits his kingdom into two and leaves half to Athelstan and half to Alfred. Well, within three weeks, one of them is dead. And we don't know who killed him, but I do. And on that note, I think that can be the end of our podcast. So thank you very much for coming on. Um, I hope your talk goes well later. Well, thank you, Rachel. That was Bernard Cornwell. As I mentioned at the start, the next series of The Last Kingdom is due to be released on Netflix on the 19th of November. Meanwhile, the 11th Last Kingdom novel, War of the Wolf, was published last month by HarperCollins. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will be back on Monday when Giles Milton will be describing the events of D-Day. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.